Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. From the New Books Network, this is New Books in Geography. I'm your host, Dino Kadic. What do you think of when you think of the Balkan route? Years after some of the most spectacular state violence undertaken to repel migrants making their way towards Europe, and with the focus now shifted on refugees from Ukraine, many have stopped thinking about it altogether. But not Piero Recepi. For him, a journey along the Balkan route, from the violent exclusion of Roma and Muslim communities in Bulgaria to the colonial saving missions in Kosovo and everywhere in between, helps us to understand how whiteness works, not just in the Balkans, but in Europe and around the world. And it just so happens that this journey tracks along Recepi's life, too. His new book, White Enclosures, Racial Capitalism and Coloniality Along the Balkan Route, out now from Duke University Press, draws together strands of refugee carceral technologies, Roma displacement, and histories of coloniality and socialist modernity. And it's nothing short of mind-blowing. We're so lucky to have Piero with us today. Piero, welcome to New Books in Geography. Can you start off by telling us who you are, and how you came to write this book? Um, thanks, Dino. So, I mean, I was thinking how I ended up writing this book when I saw your question. And maybe the best way to answer it is to say that I grew up in the 90s in Macedonia. So I spent half of my childhood in Yugoslavia and the other half in what became independent former Yugoslav Republic of Macedonia. And so being Albanian and Muslim in both Yugoslavia and Macedonia gave you a sort of ephemeral sense of existence, obviously because of everything that was going on. Um, And so I think it shaped the way I looked at the world in the sense that we were made to understand very early on that we're not um, welcomed here, that our presence in this region is questionable. And so... I think that was probably one of the earliest moments of thinking about being in this space, but like considered not of this space um, that drove me then to kind of pursue an education in international relations and international studies and thinking that I would somehow be able to address this or find this problem in the annals of American Academy. And so I moved to the U.S. and I enrolled in an international studies major at City College of New York. And so it was interesting because, I mean, I couldn't find any of this um, issues that I had grown up with in any relevant curriculum at City College because in international studies, you mostly do these like grand IR theories, which are from game theory to, I don't know, realism and liberalism, which are generally concerned with sort of world order from a very EU American centric perspective. And so what happened is if you had chosen a particular area, then what you were supposed to do is apply those theories to that area. And even if they didn't work, you had to like make them work somehow. And eventually, I mean, I found all of this, obviously, like I mentioned in the introduction, not very inspiring, but eventually I um, came under the advice of Marina Fernando, who introduced me to post-colonial theory, critical race theory, queer theory, critical border studies. Um, And so I started to kind of think of the region through these theoretical frameworks and praxis. And maybe that was the beginning of 
rethinking the entire region. But there was also a problem because usually when you study anything about Eastern Europe or the Balkans, you inevitably have to work within the um, area studies specialists. And area studies are so limited in the spatial and temporal frameworks. So obviously, if you're studying the Balkans, you're studying inter-ethnic conflict, nationalism, post-socialism, democratization, peacekeeping, all those topics that were relevant to IR or mainstream IR. And so race, obviously, or colonialism never appeared on the radar of these studies, because obviously the way colonialism is studied in U.S. universities still, in it's also like in these, I mean, like Anne Stoller has already critiqued it in duress, imperial durability, in these like very particular spaces that where colonialism matters and then in other spaces it doesn't. And so it was very challenging to overcome this because every time I would present at conferences, I kept being challenged that what happened in, let's say, Bosnia or Kosovo, it was an inter-ethnic conflict, right? And so like before that, there was nothing there. And to go back to where I come from, when you do come from that space, and when you know those histories very intimately, you know that this is not necessarily something new, but a reoccurring feature of expulsion in particular, but also erasure. And so this wasn't the first time that there was an attempt to kind of get rid of Muslims in the Balkans. It was something that had happened from the late Ottoman to then post-Ottoman period all the way to the 90s. Um, And so maybe this is broadly how I finally came to gain the courage to write about these topics from a more critical perspective. But I should say... One of the key books that, or maybe two key books that gave me the courage to overcome the colorblindness of Balkan studies and East European studies was Fatma El Taib's book, European Others, Queering Ethnicity in Post-National Europe. I think it was very important because what she does in the book is she kind of deconstructs European colorblindness by arguing that even though Europe has been the site that produced race and racism and exported it to the United States. Today, it uses U.S. excessive racism to generate its own innocence. And and so I found her approach and her methodologies very inspiring. And I think I like to think of my book as working through her praxis to think about the Balkans. And then the other one was... Uh, Robert Vitali's Worldwide Order, Black Power Politics, which helped me a lot to think genealogically about the colonial institutions um, that formed the post-Ottoman nation states and the way in which these institutions are not necessarily separate from Euro-Atlantic world order that was constructed after World War I because he traces there the history of how race anxiety in the United States among Atlanticists and eugenicists who were working around the Journal for Race Development um, were kind of obsessed with this idea of racial unity because they saw the white race as being under threat. And they sponsored, a lot of them sponsored and supported Woodrow Wilson's uh, project uh, of the 14 points, as it's known at the Paris Peace Conference and the establishment of the League of Nations, because they believed that this would create then an impetus for a Euro-American alliance in an increasingly global mixing war. And so they saw this race mixing as a danger to whiteness, not just in the U.S., but globally. And they thought the fortification of Euro-American alliance, um, I mean, that's why they were also called Atlanticists, right, Um, would secure a space where white demographics would be the majority and there wouldn't be this um, danger to white supremacy, essentially. But I think the, the fear was also from a larger, if you look at it from a larger global history, I mean, 
you also have Japan winning Russia in the war, which is the first time that a non-European power had defeated a European power, which I think it's also a very significant event that shapes their um, thinking about the world. And also the emergence of anti-colonial and decolonial uh, or decolonization movements uh, throughout the global south. And so I was trying to situate how the post-Ottoman world, particularly in the Balkans, figures in all of these processes, because in their minds, the Bal- especially the, for the Atlanticists, the Balkan is this space where um, the borderland where Christianity and the eugenics of white people come in contact with non-white and non-Christian civilization, so to speak. And so they get obsessed with uh, the Balkans. So many of them essentially argue that um, these are Aboriginal, Aryan people that needs to be reintegrated into Europe uh, following the end of the Ottoman Empire. And they need to be converted if possible. But despite their Islam, they're still racially European and therefore there should be made space, if liminal, if so, in Europe for them. And so I was interested in how then post-Ottoman nationalist movement utilized this discourse to kind of make a claim that they're Europeans, in particular Albanian nationalism, where they had to prioritize race over religion um, to make a claim as being European and like returning to Europe after 500 years of sort of Ottoman um, occupation. So they had to work through these temporal frameworks to kind of go back to the pre-Ottoman period and generate and excavate certain pre-Muslim historicities that they could then deploy towards their nationalist aims. Um, So the pressure to project themselves as European, as white, as secular, is where all of this essentially starts. And so this is the genealogy that I was trying to trace, and I was trying to make these connections. And frequently... When the book was under review, I received many comments from um, the reviewers that I should talk about renewal of racial and colonial um, violence. But I, I couldn't get myself to think of renewal because for me, this was more of a continuity rather than renewal. Because for a lot of the readers, um, the period of socialism in between is kind of seen as this, um, let's say, emancipatory um, 45, 50 years of emancipatory politics. But I don't necessarily think that way in the sense that I think the socialist project was also a project of modernity. It was also an assimilationist project, particularly for Muslim, Albanian, and Roma people in Yugoslavia. And so I think more of the continuities rather than raptures and renewals in the ways in which the contemporary European Union borders along the Balkan route and the client states that enforce the borders on sites are, uh, or rather depend on these histories to kind of make those legitimate, quote-unquote legitimate claims that this territory is Europe and that as such it needs to be guarded by the EU. And so that's why today, for instance, if you cross the Greek-Albanian border, you have German police officers policing or Polish police officers policing Albanian police officers, right? Um, And so those are the larger uh, parameters around which I was thinking of the region. I was also trying to avoid the um, national methodologies Because what happens when you think of these processes through a national paradigm, the tendency is to kind of ignore the internal other within the nation. So this happens frequently. I mean, maybe even more controversially, like currently with a better example would be, let's say, Catalan nationalism or Scottish nationalism, which practically claims that they were also victims of Spanish and English colonialism, respectively. But then... What happens there when you make that claim for like the independence project of both Catalans and uh, Scots is to kind of erase the fact that these were co-constitutive members of Spanish and British 
colonialism and that Glasgow or Barcelona were built on colonial extraction, wealth, and slavery. And so um, avoiding this kind of national trap allowed me to think from, I know it's problematic to say this, but to think more from the margins and how these histories look like from people that were denied agency in international relations um, or international politics or in shaping uh, um, the contours of their uh, future. Um, yeah, so that's where, sorry for the very long um, <laughs> take it going. In Albanian, you say, I went by the way of China to explain something, to describe something that somebody takes forever to get to the point of. I think you you gave us a really great kind of walk around the the contours of the book there. And I think anyone who didn't know so much about, say, the the kind of historical fine finer details um, that you're working with here, I think we'll have a much better idea now. I do want to just jump back um, to the region. And one thing that I think a lot of people will be really impressed by with this book is the way in which you manage to talk across these different places, countries, um, in a way that really kind of brings out and respects their complexity and doesn't flatten them. Um, And I think many people, as I was, will be impressed with the ways that you can navigate all of the different kind of languages, both literally and also kind of culturally. in these places. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what it was like talking about, you know, the Balkans or the Balkan route um, and holding that complexity. I mean, on the one hand is it's, it's interesting because you feel sometimes um, embarrassed to talk about the Balkans because the Balkans has become such a contentious term it's been critiqued so much. Um, and so there's all this discourse also about Balkan experts. And so there's the tendency to shy away from talking about the Balkans and the Balkan route in particular. Um, and so it was also difficult for me to overcome that, I guess. But there was no other way to think of the issues that I was thinking of Um other than to think through the regional perspective um, and in particular to think through the spaces that the refugees passed by, the encounters they had, and the sort of uh, coalescing of histories of refugees with local populations, including people who had left the Balkans at the end of the 19th or early 20th century as Muhajirs or post-Ottoman Muslim refugees that moved to Turkey, Syria, Lebanon, Egypt, um, some of them returning back, and um, which created this uh, problem for who is a native and who is uh, a refugee, but also a lot of Kosovars in 2015 during the refugee crisis simply joined the refugees on their way to um, Europe on their way north. Um, so there was, like I said, no way to kind of not think of, not think of this, these issues through, through the region, but also not falling to the traps of, um, homogenizing or leveling out the various, on the contrary, I was actually trying to, um, bring out and expose the inequalities that have frequently been erased um, or leveled out in much of the knowledge that's been produced about the Balkans in the last two, three decades, where inter-ethnic conflict, <clears throat> which is the term that I probably find the most problematic, erases out the fact that Muslims and Roma communities came under structural violence. Um, and this was not an inter-ethnic conflict. This was massacre, genocide, mass expulsion. And it didn't just happen in Bosnia and Kosovo. It also happened in Bulgaria. It also happened in Macedonia. I mean, obviously, there are different ways in which these forms of 
um, exclusion, um, violence, and expulsion operated by trying to kind of address the differences and the similarities. The goal, obviously, from a nationalist, far-right, racist perspective, is to resolve this question once and for all. And this is not how uh, the 1990s wars are discussed in most of the scholarship. Um, and also the post-conflict arrangement of these states, particularly Bosnia and Kosovo, are meant to create two countries with Muslim-majority population that are perpetually um, have a suspended or deferred sovereignty. And so an unresolved sort of conflict, uh, perpetual instability, and praise of former aggressors like Serbia. So, I mean, like I said, it's, it's, um, it's difficult to do this because it's very easy to be labeled as a nationalist. And so one way to kind of think about this is to also critique the very nationalism that you're being accused of. So in my book, I don't necessarily think of um, Bulgarian nationalism being, I mean, of course, Bulgarian nationalism is different from Albanian nationalism, but I think they're both, <laughs> they're both invested in uh, the need to corroborate themselves as white and all the racist trappings that this requires, particularly in the racialization of others below them who don't necessarily pass fully as white. And so I wanted to also address these kind of racist hierarchies that are the main ingredients of nationalism. Um, yeah. So let's let's get into those kind of racial hierarchies. You use this term that I think uh, geographers like me will be very happy with and very comfortable with, but perhaps some of the IR readers of your book will uh, will get a little bit uncomfortable. But you talk about white geopolitics as the kind of or as a way that this operates. So can you tell people what what white geopolitics are in, in this context and how they work? So I think of white geopolitics in the sense that what is being guarded by these borders, both and the, at the Mediterranean, the Balkan route, but also at the U.S.-Mexico border. So what we have is a transatlantic white gated community. Um, and so white geopolitics means the all those politics, policies, interconnected industries, border industries that seek to um, make this site impenetrable and wall it around whiteness. In other words, these are uh, the, the, the border politics of geopolitics of whiteness today have no different aims from the Atlanticists in the late 19th and early 20th century, in as much as the idea here is that those who are considered and produced as white can join the enclosure and can become part of the geopolitics of whiteness, like post-socialist white subjects in Eastern Europe after the Cold War. They were invited to join the Euro-Atlantic Alliance because they were considered historically white. And so they could be within this enclosure of geopolitical whiteness. But that wasn't the case with, let's say, Morocco, who also applied to join the European Union. And so the question here becomes then, what is the delineating factor that defines the Euro-Atlantic alliance at its borders? Obviously, it's race and religion. I mean, um, in the south end of it, you have migrants that come from Africa and the Maghreb, um, which is predominantly Muslim and Arab. And then you also have the Balkans, which is where uh, this sort of contact this the, the the kind of whiteness that you may find, let's say, in Poland or the Czech Republic isn't necessarily the case here, which is what makes it more complicated to kind of seal the border here as well, I guess. Um, and so I thought through, I, I mean, I, I'm thinking of the geopolitics as whiteness as a continuation of the Atlanticist movement then gets reestablished again after the Cold War with the integration of post-socialist people and spaces into the European Union as sort of the final coagulation and stabilization of the white enclosure, 
or the geopolitics of whiteness. And so naturally we don't speak of these terms in IR because obviously we think in IR of, you know, the European Union is just trying to protect its borders and so is the United States and every nation state does this. But then again, these are not the borders of Europe and the United States are not national borders. They're very much post-national, if we can call it that. And so the industry is also that... Um, facilitate um, the enclosure around these borders are global industries that come out of other colonial contexts, like, for instance, the settler colonial context in Israel. Elbit has been a very important um, contractor for the EU and the United States in developing, in particular, drone surveillance of migrants along the Aegean Sea and the Bulgarian-Turkish border um, based on their successful drone surveillance that they've deployed in the occupied territories in Gaza. And so what the politics that sustain global, a white global-gated community are obviously um, there. Um, it's just that we still use, obviously, a different language to address them the difference may be that if the Atlanticists in the late 19th and early 20th century were very frank about what the goal of the Euro-American alliance is, uh, today's articulation of the Euro-Atlantic alliance leaves you wondering, well, what is this about? Because it can't clearly be about a very special relationship, which is the term that is usually used. Well, why is there a special relationship between the United States and Europe? Right? Is it because the Atlanticists, including Woodrow Wilson, believe that you know the U.S.-Mexico border is the extension of Europe? And in many ways, it is. I mean, in the sense that mm, the United States also sees itself as part of this extension of European coloniality, which it is. Um, and so, I don't know that I have a, a single definition which I generally avoid working with because it's very IR-centric. I don't necessarily have a single definition, also because the geopolitics of whiteness are porous processes and they're constantly evolving processes. I mean, yes, the enclosure uh, is a desired outcome, but it's not a fixed outcome. I mean, there's constantly ongoing processes to seal the borders, but that doesn't mean that um, the borders are sealed. I mean, obviously, people are still coming through from the Balkan route and the Mediterranean. Um, and so I, 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 I try to think through the geopolitics of whiteness in the book as, um, as a process whose goal is to create um, borders around the transatlantic um, and make these spaces impenetrable from outside. Great. Thanks. Um, I I want to kind of now shift to to this kind of larger, I guess, connection that you make in the book. So we heard already uh, about this kind of connection between between the Balkan route and the U.S. borderlands, um, which is something that you draw really beautifully, um, and. I think that a lot of readers might be surprised to open a book that has Balkan route in the title and to start with a story kind of that isn't, you know, about a, a Syrian or an Afghan refugee crossing Serbia or something like that. It actually starts in a, in a small town in Bulgaria called Asenovgrad. Um, and uh, a really kind of brutal, vicious attack against quote-unquote local Roma and Muslim community members. Um, and I, I want you to talk a little bit about maybe why, why you started with that story, what that says about race and racialization in the region, and how, how you kind of connect these different forms of otherness or kind of outcastness um, that are bounded outside of white Europe. I mean, Asenovgrads came into my interest accidentally because I was in Bulgaria, so I'm part of an anti-racist network in the Balkans, and 
I was in Bulgaria to look at the treatment of refugees along the Bulgarian-Turkish border. Between 2015 and 2018, I made several visits there. And when I visited Asenovgrad, I kind of noticed that Loznica, the neighborhood that I'm talking about in the book, there was a lot of calamity around destroying houses. And initially, when you hear these stories, they they don't always make sense, obviously, because you don't know the larger context. And so frequently what you're told is that, well, these houses are being demolished because they don't have the right to dwell here, because they're illegal constructions. And of course, I was kind of suspicious because this is how the Serb authorities and Macedonian authorities used to uh, bulldozer Albanian homes in the 90s by saying, well, you don't have a license and you can't get a license because the municipal authorities are not going to give you a license. So there's that story. But then when you dig deeper, that story is also very intimately tied to the post-socialist processes of private privatization. So most of the these dwelling licenses, if we can call them that, or the right to build, were given during the socialist period. And the privatization, the post-socialist privatization in Bulgaria was very racist and very selective. And so a lot of the land where... Uh, racialized communities dwell was given back to some supposed pre-socialist landowner and who managed to generate a paper that said, this is my land. And, you know, the amount of corruption that goes into that process, which I don't go into because it's, um, I mean, people have already uh, done extensive studies of post-socialist private corruption and post-socialist privatization. But generally these, these forms of, um, expulsion and demolition of homes targeted in particular Roma Muslim communities, but also Turkish minorities in Bulgaria. And so what I found fascinating is that um, these communities were being essentially chased out of their homes in much the same way that, you know, people who were coming in Bulgaria as refugees had been chased out of their homes. Um, and I started to think how their um, histories are not necessarily uh, different histories, that there's converging points here, that a lot of the a lot of Syrian refugees that may, would make it into Bulgaria would find solidarity in these Muslim communities. Um, and so the other thing that happened, particularly in 2017, is when this uh, incident happened in Loznica that I describe in the book where um, several uh, guys from Loznica tried to save a Bulgarian woman that was drowning in the river near Loznica, the neighborhood. Um, members of the kayaking team that were practicing essentially started throwing th- slurs at them, and then they got into a fight, and then the Bulgarian police intervened and essentially arrested the people that were trying to save the Bulgarian woman, but not the members of the kayaking team. And this incident then became, gained national attention um, and protest against quote-unquote Roma aggression um, spread through Bulgaria within a week like wildfire. Um, And the other, I mean, the, the other thing that was interesting here is that these protests were being supported by both the left and the right so there was, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't a matter of, you know, the left, which you would have expected to say, these are racist, um, far-right groups who are organizing and fueling hate towards a marginalized and racialized community. On the contrary, like I show in my book, if you l- listened to the plenary session of the Bulgarian Assembly, I mean, they used the same exact racist slurs that you heard in the protests in the cities that, you know, these are contaminator communities, that there needs to be fine, there, there needs to be a solution. I mean, some of them even called for euthanasia, that a lot of these communities are mm, a danger to Bulgaria, a ticking bomb because they're increasingly turning to religion and so forth. And so these were the same more or less discourses that also permeated around the question of refugees. And so 
there was very little difference of how the public discourse addressed the refugee crisis and the Roma Muslim community as sort of a threat to Bulgarian demographics. And so demographics is another important factor here because, yes, there has been a huge demographic drop in Bulgaria, but that's because once Bulgaria joined the European Union, many high-skilled Bulgarians moved to the EU, and so, and many workers moved to the EU as well. And so you have this demographic decline. I think it's probably one of the highest in the region, if not in Europe. Um, and so these combinations, these, these factors that came together to create this threat um, that would turn the Bulgarian people, in the words of some journalist, an ex- extinct exotic minority in their own country, um, is what led me to think of the connection between um, the fear and the panic of white demographics that is not just Bulgarian, but that you can come across throughout Europe and the United States, um, and how it manifests in borders, and how it seeks to resolve these anxieties over race through policing borders and through setting up enclosures and how similar those enclosures around the cities and towns of Bulgaria are to the enclosures being built around Europe and the United States. Most Bulgarian towns are increasingly fortifying um, their cities from Roma communities who live in the outskirts. And so, which is a replication of the larger uh, geopolitical border or gated community, so to speak. And this became even more visible during the COVID pandemic, at which point the book had already gone into production. So I wasn't able to add a lot about it. I mean, the way the Bulgarian state treated these communities during the pandemic, including um, helicoptering over them and spraying them with disinfectants, not allowing them to go in and out of the neighborhoods when other citizens of Bulgaria could easily move or at least move within those restrictions that were given. So a very different kind of treatment as this, the, the, the state officially saying that my, avoid minority zones as zones of containment. And so these very dystopic racist discourse around enclosures that manifests itself on a lo- local, national, and a regional level that is interconnected from Roma to refugee communities. Thanks for that. Um, There's so much there. I'm thinking of the kind of great and somewhat disturbing billboard um, that you include a photo of in the book, promising Bulgarian women um, sea cups um, without plastic surgery as a kind of advertisement for natality. Um, There's so much there. I guess I want to start by by thinking about something you mentioned earlier, um, which is this kind of continuity. Um, so can you talk a little bit about kind of the the socialist project of modernity and its the way it was oriented towards these communities and um, how that changes in the kind of European Union era? Yes, yeah, so one, I mean, one of the, one of the reasons that I think I address socialist modernity is because frequently what happens in post-socialist spaces um, and in Eastern Europe in general is to kind of, but especially in post-Yugoslav spaces, is this Yugo nostalgia, right? This idea that, well, things only started to get bad with the rise of nationalism in late Yugoslavia and the wars were a product of the collapse of state socialism. And so, like I said earlier, that leaves you to imagine that state socialism was somehow different to these minorities. And for sure, there were differences. I don't want to um, suggest that there weren't. But it's important to also interrogate um, the socialist forms of racism and othering, because much of what we see today um, is a continuation of that project. And so if we think of, for instance, uh, Bulgaria or Yugoslavia, I mean, the, the, the Bulgarian state 
went as far as massive assimilation of its Muslim population under, um, you know, the revival process. The idea was that um, these Muslims are Bulgarians and they were converted into Muslims and they were de-Bulgarianized during the Ottoman Empire. And so the job of the socialist state is to bring them back into Bulgarianness by giving them Bulgarian Christian names. And so then you think, well, okay, so it's very interesting that a socialist secular state is actually assimilating Muslims into Bulgarians with Christian names. Um, and these, these processes, again, to go back to the continuities, this also happened in Bulgaria after the Balkan War. There was massive baptismals throughout Muslim villages in Bulgaria. And so the socialist state wanted to finish that which was started by the Bulgarian kingdom or principality in the early post-Ottoman state. Um, and so my point is to suggest that the socialist state did not make an attempt to, let's say, decolonize from these processes or um, engage in some emancipatory process through which these wrongs would be righted. On the contrary, they deepened those inequalities um, and to an extent they institutionalized them and frequently they neutralized them by the discourse of equality. And the same happened in Yugoslavia. I mean, uh, this was a country of Bratstvo Edinstvo for most or brotherhood and unity, except that if you were an Albanian or Roma, right? So like... Um, when people speak, when you sit in a room sometimes in conferences and people speak of, you know, the great Yugoslav project of self-managing corporations and equality and this kind of overall nostalgia for a period that seems to have been great. And when you sit in the room and you're Albanian, you know, you kind of wonder, well, clearly these people must have had a different experience from mine, right? Because or my parents, right? Because this is not how Albanian communities remember Yugoslavia. And I think it's the same thing with the sort of um, nostalgia for the mid-20th century that you find in the West. Like a lot of white liberals in the West have nostalgia for the mid-20th century, for the social democratic pros promises of the mid-20th century. Because obviously they had a much better experience in those days than, let's say, a gastarbeiter in Europe from Turkey or Yugoslavia or a person of color in the United States. I mean, why would a person of color in the United States romanticize the mid-20th century, you know, like the segregation of schools, um, the racist discrimination, the segregation of cities? And so these sort of... Uh, nostalgic projects are not always, in my mind, reactionary, but they're particularly reactionary when people deploy them towards some sort of emancipatory process without necessarily addressing the problematic nature of those projects of modernity, be it socialism or liberalism, which are the two sides of the Euro, uh, Eurocentric coin of modernity or thinking through uh, coloniality. It seems like the the kind of particular relationship with Islam um, that you describe in the European Union today very much has deep roots in um, in socialist modernity and kind of even pre-socialist uh, politics. So, can you talk a little bit about this kind of history of Islam? In, in this part of Europe that you draw out in this book, um, which I think probably would surprise a lot of people who haven't kind of gone deep into this history. I think there's a lot of really interesting material here. Well, thank you. Um, I mean, so I, I, in the second half of my book, I'm trying to think of what it meant for Muslims in the Balkans after the collapse of the Ottoman Empire so there, were, there was an imperative here. You either stayed or you left. And Leila Amzir Dogdular has a great thesis that she wrote on the debates in Bosnia, especially in the 19th century when the Austro-Hungarians colonized Bosnia 
the debates within the Muslim ulema was, do we actually stay here and live under the Habsburg Empire, or do we withdraw with the Ottoman Empire and perform hijra? And some people left, obviously, and some stayed. Um, and so some people were also expelled. So I'm interest, I was interested in how what it meant to kind of uh, rethink um, all aspects of your life anew and transform yourself all of a sudden into a European, into, um, into a secular subject, um, which is a very violent process of transition that we've seen. And it doesn't necessarily just happen in the Balkans. I mean, it also happened in Turkey um, with Kemalism. Um, and so this, is, this, this project of secularization affects every aspect of life. Um, every aspect of Muslim life in particular, because secularism is a diluted form of Christianity or it's a product of Christianity. And so naturally it's more, it accommodates uh, Christian secular uh, public and private realm and affairs. Um, But Muslim communities, but also I would say Jewish communities as well, find themselves... um, inadequate, feeling inadequate in these uh, secular societies. And so one way, I mean, because it's such a large topic, I had to target it from one particular way. And because being queer, I was also always interested in queer studies and queer politics. I was interested in how ambiguous gender, sexual desires and subjectivities and embodiments that exist in the Ottoman Empire, in the late Ottoman Empire, all of a sudden start to become structured and streamlined and registered um, through the male-female homo-hetero binary, well, predominantly male and female binaries. And so one subject that I was very interested in was how the Kucheks, which were um, gender non-conforming entertainers in cities in the Ottoman Empire, start to disappear from the archives. As you look at the archives, you see them making an appearance until, let's say, 1915, 19, late 1910s. But by 1920, they somehow disappear from the archive. And so my question was, well, what happens to the Kucheks, right? And so they have to, because what happens is the registration of the population, the establishment of the Albanian independent nation state. And Albania aspires to become a European nation. And in the process, it aspires to create European citizens. And in the creation of European citizens, obviously, what you have is the... Um, um, the rejection of this ambiguous sexualities and genders and the creation of the gender binaries, which I already mentioned. So I'm also, I'm very interested in how both these processes were imagined by um, the nationalist imagination um, as, as righting a wrong, right? As recovering a, the true heterosexual European Albanian by cleansing them from their Islamic ambiguous sexualities Um, and how they were enacted in real life as well. And so um, I was lucky enough to have access to the Marubi archive, which is the Albanian National Photographic Archive, where I came across these very interesting posters, essentially, where the International Control Commission, which was sent to manage the independence of Albania from the Ottoman Empire and appointed a German prince, Wilhelm Zuvid, um, was a very short-lived mission because there was a Muslim uprising that overthrows the prince and defeats the International Control Commission. But in its short-lived mission, one of their goals was to actually... um, create public awareness around gender. And one of the ways in which they did this is to stage how it's wrong um, to be caught uh, having an affair with a Kuchek. And so 
one of the images, for instance, shows two soldiers of the International Control Commission pulling an Albanian man's ear because he's been caught in an affair with a Kuchek. And so this was meant to kind of convey the new norms of, uh, or the new division between normative uh, gender and sexuality and the deviant kind that must be left behind. And so what I find interesting is how uh, the longevity of how stubborn these these discourses are in the sense that it's very difficult to um, avoid them as you read about gender and sexuality, for instance, in the Albanian literature. So throughout socialism and post-socialism, you have this continuous cultural productions where the Albanian male in particular who has come in touch with Islam and the Ottoman Empire is seen as contaminated, and then he is put through the temptation of homosexuality, and overcoming that temptation allows him to reclaim himself as a European heterosexual man and be the defender of the nation and think of the future as opposed to the past. And so these are sort of the literary tensions or the um, uh, the narratives through which um, Albanian sexuality, particular male heterosexuality and masculinity, is narrated through. And so um, it's not unusual to come across um, outrageous statements in the Albanian press by Albanian writers that, like, you know, mm, the Ottomans introduced Albanians to deviant desires that there's nothing that came good of that period, um, that it was 500 years of darkness. And like most national historiographies, obviously the Albanian national historiography also um, covers the entire 500 years of the Ottoman Empire and their history books in five pages. So these are very potent narratives that are constantly reproduced. And any attempt at um, challenging them are met with a very strong opposition because it threatens these very central tenets of we are indigenous to the Balkans, which on the one hand confronts Serbian and Greek nationalist claims that Albanians being majority Muslim are not native here, they're Turks, they should go back and so forth. So Albanian nationalism had to respond to several uh, fronts essentially and when you challenge these uh, foundations of um, gendered foundations of the nation, you immediately become uh, sort of targeted by secular nationalist uh, groups who kind of see them as central to their claim to um, live in Europe and be called European and you remove them or you rather remove the opportunity from them to blame the Ottoman Empire as the culprit from them for them not being still members of the European Union. Because if they were Christian, they would have been already members of the EU and so forth. Yeah, I well, first of all, I just want to call out these amazing photos that um, are included in this chapter from the archive. That, I mean, I feel like that alone makes it worth buying the book. Um, but I want to think about these kind of what you call decolonial Balkan routes that you imagine through queer Islamic sexualities. I I kind of imagine a, a hypothetical EU, you know, peace and implementation cooperation official, the kind that I habitually outrage on Twitter. Um looking at what you write and thinking, okay, great, let's just kind of dig up um, these queer Islamic sexualities and fit them into a European liberal kind of uh, new new subject um, or whatever. But I, I think they will, will be misreading your work um, because I don't think that 
you see those two things fitting together. So kind of a, a convoluted question, but I wonder if you could kind of talk about that tension and um, how you arrive at these decolonial Balkan routes instead. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think the the irony here is that, um, and I do say this in the book, um, even though it, some people may consider it problematic, but, you know, um, you can't make everybody happy. I do say in the book, especially in chapter four, that if if the European project demanded from Albanians in the beginning of the 20th century to uh, clean themselves from Islamic desires, deviant sexualities, and um, ambiguous gender embodiments, at the end of the 20th century, it actually says, well, no, now you have to embrace queer and ambiguous gender and sexuality. Um, and so this is the kind of um, irony of the whole uh, project. And so naturally, most Albanians uh, um, today, at least judging from the polls, are um, still homophobic because we still live through the consequences of the project of modernity that produced, gave birth to that homophobia. I wouldn't say it was just the project of modernity because naturally homophobia was there before, but in an institutionalized mass form in the way that it's experienced today. But I don't know that when I think of decolonial Balkan roots, I don't know that I necessarily just think about excavating these histories, but I'm interested in how people try to deal with erasure um, try to understand their past outside of the vocabularies and grammars um, that have been sanctioned by socialist or post-socialist or post-Ottoman nationalist historiographies, where a queer person would not be able to find themselves there because there is nothing about the histories of uh, queers, let's say, or Roma in the national historiographies of most of these countries, if not all. And so... Um, I'm not necessarily, I'm less interested in reviving them because I do find that to be a similar reactionary uh, project as is Yugo Nostalgia. But I'm interested to see what people make of them and how they take them up to create new forms of solidarity. And so one example, for instance, that I use in the book is the Bulgarian singer Aziz, who does a great job at uh, various moments of tension to release these songs that speak to the commonalities between refugees and Roma people, but also Balkan people. And so, for instance, if you listen to the song Habibi, um, or if you listen to the song Motel and the video in particular, what you have is a bus going through Sofia, where Aziz is singing, where there is a lesbian couple, where there is a trans person, where there is an older couple, where there is a refugee, there's a Muslim woman with a hijab. And so releasing these kind of songs and melodies that could be heard both in Bulgaria and Beirut at the same time um, speaks to a kind of solidarity that sees through the imposed borders along the Balkan route, through the imposed Eurocentric national narratives of who is European, who is indigenous and who isn't, and who belongs and who doesn't. And so I guess that's what I'm interested in, in people who cross over and question and queer and destabilize these seemingly straight, stable notions of uh, space, sexuality, subjectivity, um, and belonging. Um, and so I think, I mean, I do think of music as one of the important sites where this is done in particular, because one thing that um, most of this post-Ottoman racism hasn't been able to achieve, even though they may have erased uh, what I like to call queer theories retroactively, I guess, 
um, they haven't been able to erase the taste for music that people have, despite multiple attempts. I mean, in Bulgaria, and it was uh, listening to Chalga music, for instance, was considered during the communist period almost illegal in the sense that this was considered shund or kitsch. Similarly in Yugoslavia, I mean, if you listened to this kind of music, well, obviously in Yugoslavia it wasn't banned, but if you listened to this kind of music, like you became un- came under the gaze of the socialist modern emancipator who kind of saw this as a backward remnant of, you know, an undesired past. And so the persistence of this music is very important to me and how queer people and trans people take up this music and deploy it towards new forms of solidarity and togetherness is very important and very interesting, I think. I think we could probably talk for hours just about this kind of strange politics of queerness and music um, in this region. Um, there's so much there. Unfortunately, we do have to start to wrap up. Um, before we do, you mentioned that the book went into production around the time COVID started. A lot a lot has happened in the world. A lot has happened in the region in the time since. I wonder just if you could share some thoughts about kind of what you've learned about what you wrote in, in this kind of world of racial capitalism and coloniality. Um during this time of COVID, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, um, and the kind of very uh, unexpected refugee response um, in its wake. Yeah, I mean, I feel that um, I feel that the response to Ukrainian refugees, unlike Syrian refugees, it's obviously very telling of what I'm talking about in the book, in the sense that. Um, post-socialist subjects are seen as white subjects. And while they're allowed access and they're allowed to aspire membership um, into the EU, Euro-Atlantic enclosure, others, post-colonial others, right, aren't. And so, um, I mean, I, di- I don't necessarily see anything there that... Um, can't be extended that I've discussed about the Balkan route that can be extended to the refugee, the Ukrainian refugee question. Although obviously there's complexities because these are two different regions, but nonetheless, I think how uh, Europe responded is um, very telling of what is it that we're talking about here. I mean, the other thing is, is that there's, in addition to these public discourses that I address um, in the introduction, there's also a very um, lucrative industry um, bankrolled by the European Union, but also the United States, um, where you have nearly 50, if not more, refugee camps now. And... um, a lot of these states and private investors in these countries are interested in how to make a profit out of the camps. And some already are. I mean, uh, the Greek government hired an American consulting firm to kind of advise them how to create maximum productivity out of the refugee camps. And this goes from that level down to the level of the suppliers Um, who supply food, health, sanitation, and so forth. And so this kind of encampment um, and extraction of value from precarity and from refugees, it's not necessarily unique to the Balkans, but it's frequently um, under-examined for some reason in the Balkans because the refugee discourse because the refugee situation is so desperate that mostly safe passage is what most activists focus on, and rightly so, because that's important. But in the refugee camps and the economy that emerges around the refugee camps and the exploitation of refugees, both in formal and informal economies, is also 
something that needs to be addressed, obviously, because, I mean, the kind of the level of um, exploitation of refugees that work in the black market um, is excessive throughout these countries, I mean, including Turkey as well. And so um, I tried to think of these sites also as sites of racial capitalism in as much as um, race is uh, an ingredient of um, how capitalism structures a hierarchy of uh, surplus production, but also exploitation of labor. And so um, a good example of this, for instance, would be that, yes, um, um, local, let's say, Bosnians are equally racialized as the refugees are vis-a-vis Europe, but local Bosnians can still at times make a buck from, you know, the refugees who show up who may eat at the restaurant or who may get a coffee and so forth. So just to think through those hierarchies, I think it's important because obviously um, capital and the circulation of capital and political economy overall plays an important role in how these movements are um, regulated and how the camps and encampments are structured and who benefits from them and who sponsors them, essentially, which is what I've also tried to cover. I forgot what your other point was. No, I think that's um, really good as a kind of way of provoking um, more kind of thoughtful reflection on on what's happening in Europe today. Um, So before we send you off, um, I'm sure listeners will be very interested to hear what you're working on now. You have a great article out um, uh, that we will put in the show notes, but, but tell us what people can look forward to from you. I mean, honestly, I, I haven't necessarily, um, I'm not necessarily working on any project because I mean, you're in academia and you know how it is this, this, the pressure to, um, produce something compromises frequently the the work that you're doing. And for the last 10 years, I felt this pressure a lot. So I had, I, I was producing and writing and I feel like I want to write something when I want to say something next. And I haven't necessarily pressured myself a lot to, to think about that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I am interested, for instance, in how, and maybe this is the project that I want to look at next, I'm interested in the kind of solidarity networks that emerge between sex workers, refugee sex workers, and local sex workers in Greece, in Thessaloniki. I've already written a paper about it. It's called Predatory Porn. But I feel like I want to go deeper in there and expand to kind of think of the affective economies um, that underline borders and refugee regimes. So maybe maybe along those lines, I hope. That sounds really interesting. Well, Pira Rajepi, your book is White Enclosures, Racial Cap- Capitalism and Coloniality Along the Balkan Route. It's an incredible book, um, and I think everyone should go out and read it. Piro, thank you so much for joining us today on the New Books Network. Thank you so much for having me, Dino. It's been a pleasure.